Well, good morning, Bolton. It is so good to be with you, at least virtually. I'm looking forward to being at the other two sites on Sunday. So uh, hopefully we can connect physically in person soon. But uh, what a pleasure to be with you today. And I thought we'd just jump right into it. It is an understatement to say we live in a polarized world. Politics, vaccines, race, abortion, what we mean by law and order. I could go on. In fact, we will later. But here's the fascinating part. Polarization and all the different ways we've seen it over the last few years is not just a non-religious people thing. It's not just things that people do outside of the church. In fact, Christians are often no better. Just check your social media, check Facebook if you wanna see it. In fact, some may actually say it's worse among Christians because we also, as non-Christians do, find ourselves on both sides of an issue. We find ourselves polarized inside the church as well. But in the church, both polarized groups believe that God is on their side. And if you have a quick look at history, history tells us that when people think they have God on their side, everything gets turned up to the next level. So today we're gonna turn to the book of Luke, chapter seven, verse one, and we're gonna see polarization within the family of faith. And we're gonna see Jesus step into a polarized situation and do something that nobody expects. And I love his response. I'm all over it. And that's where we're gonna go today. So uh, if that sounds exciting and fun to you, I'd love for you to turn in your Bible or on your app to Luke chapter seven. And you can follow along and here we go. So Luke 7, verse one. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. So we're jumping into the middle of a story. Jesus just finished preaching and now he enters Capernaum. Now it's really important to note what he just finished preaching, which is called often the Sermon on the Plain. You know this, right? The love your enemies, do good to those who hurt you, pray for those who persecute you. So today we're jumping in right after he said all that. And Jesus isn't preaching in today's story. Jesus is doing, or better yet, he's responding to a situation that arises. And I love this because as one author once said, if you want to know what Jesus meant by what Jesus said, look at what Jesus did. So when you're wondering, okay, Jesus had all these nice things about love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, but then like, what did Jesus actually do to live that out? Today, we actually get to see it. So let's start at 7-1 again, and let's look at it from that lens to see how he calls us to love our enemies. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. Okay, so a little context on centurions. If you know Latin or French, sans centurion means 100. And so this meant 100 soldiers. It meant a commander who had 100 soldiers under them. That was a Roman centurion, okay? Now remember, the Jewish people were occupied by an oppressive regime called the Romans. They were violent, wealthy, powerful, they built their empire on the backs of those they occupy. Bottom line, they didn't love their enemies, they subjugated them. It's almost as if Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Plain and then he could pause and be like, oh, just one second, I just saw a Roman centurion walk in. Hey, come on up here, bud, right? Stands him up here and be like, okay, just if you want a visual aid, this guy, do the opposite and you'll be living it out pretty well, right? It's like, so you just have to understand, like that's what people kind of felt when they thought of a Roman centurion. They thought of an oppressive regime that occupied them. So now let's reread with that in mind. Verse two, there a centurion servant whom his va master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him 
to come and heal his servant. Now this is odd for many reasons. You see, in the ancient world, every group of people had their own gods, gods or deities. And everyone felt theirs was better. And in fact, if you were the winning army, you assumed it's because your gods were bigger and stronger and more powerful, right? And so the Romans are the oppressors. The Romans are the victors. So they imagine that their gods are the reason and therefore their gods are so much stronger than these Jewish gods who they've, these Jewish people who they've conquered. So to ask a Jewish rabbi for help was crazy because you had the stronger gods. Asking the carpenter of an occupied nation from a man who never rode a horse into battle, who never commanded an army, who never wielded a sword, who never won a battle, who never traveled more than 100 miles from home, never conquered any nations, this would be front page news. So why is a Roman centurion asking Jesus for help? I don't know exactly, but I'm personally just gonna suggest, it says, you know, he heard of Jesus, he heard of the miracles. And he's desperate and he's out of options. And so he sends the Jewish elders to ask for help. Verse four, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. That's a bit unexpected, right? The last people that we expect to be asking a favor for the Roman occupiers is the Jewish elders. Right? It's like, you've subjugated us. We're not doing any favors for you. But the text gives us a clue. Look at verse four. It says, he loves our nation and built our synagogue. What's happening here? To understand this, you have to kind of understand the culture of the day. And there was this thing that was part of the culture called reciprocity or reciprocity culture. And basically what it meant was like the rich would give their friends gifts expecting, you know, if I ever need a favor, it's like, I already did one for you. It's like, now you owe me and vice versa. I owe you, right? And so what would happen is people who had means were always doing favors for each other, knowing that the others would, you know, follow the reciprocity ethic and pay it back to them. But that meant the poor always got left out because you wouldn't scratch their back, so to speak, because they had nothing to offer, no way to scratch your back in return. It's the reason why Jesus preached the exact opposite of that. He says, give without expecting anything in return. You've heard that. But now you understand the context that Jesus was speaking exactly into the context of a reciprocity culture where people always gave to receive in return. And Jesus is like, stop giving just to receive in return. Jesus is opening up and flattening the equation on that. So all that to say, it was not uncommon for the the Romans to leverage the reciprocity culture and bribe people that they subjugated. And so what they'd often do is they'd literally go into a town, take it over, and then they'd they'd try and do something for the people so the people would think nicely of them. And so they would build them a synagogue. And now these Jewish elders are like, oh, wow, thanks so much. You really love us. You built us a synagogue. Now we owe you one. And so basically the the, the religious leaders are like, hey, Jesus, join the back scratching club. He does us a favor. We do him a favor. Come on, you can do this, right? We owe him one. Now, as a preacher myself, I can imagine exactly what Jesus is feeling in this moment, right? Because he just preached on this a few days or weeks ago, right? To give without expecting anything in return. And they're like, hey, come join our back scratching club. It's like, did you not hear what I just preached a few days ago? Right? Like, that's what I'd be feeling in that moment. But Jesus doesn't go on that rant. In this moment, it says simply, verse six, Jesus went with them. Now, here's a question. Did Jesus give in to the proposition, you know, this reciprocity ethic when he went with them? Was Jesus almost like, ooh, a centurion wants me? Someone rich enough to build a synagogue is calling me? Or you just kind of imagine Jesus like, oh, excuse me, poor people. Sorry, hey, that looks like you need someone to pray for healing. Um, I'll be back later. But for now, you know, the rich people are calling, right? Like, is that what's happening in this moment? Did Jesus give in to the reciprocity ethic when he preached about it just recently before? No. 
Agreeing to help someone doesn't mean you agree with the reasons. The bottom line, someone needs healing, and that is Jesus's calling card. Then the story takes an interesting turn. So Jesus, remember, is now on the way to the house. Verse six, he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Wait a second. What do you mean you don't deserve to have me come under your roof? You just sent messengers saying you do deserve this because you built a synagogue and therefore I owe it to you, right? But then you just pause and you just realize that's not what happened. He simply asked the Jewish elders to ask Jesus to come. He wasn't the one that created the proposition. The elders added the proposition. Go back and read the story. He just asked Jesus to come. They added the whole, Jesus, we owe it to him. And when the centurion realizes that Jesus is coming, he sends his friends. He's like, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. He continues in verse seven. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. All of a sudden we get a glimpse through the Roman centurion's friends as to his heart. And it's humility that's in his heart. He realizes that he's undeserving. He understands it's culturally taboo to have a Jew come into a Gentile's home. He doesn't want to offend Jesus. The bottom line is the Roman centurion is not using the power play move. Remember, he has a hundred soldiers at his discretion. He easily could have said, go find this you know, Jewish carpenter, bring him back here, drag him back if you have to. My servant needs healing and that's the guy who's gonna do it. He doesn't do that. He rejects the power model. He humbles himself and he asks for help. And then he says this in verse eight, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. What's he saying in this? He's like, Jesus, I understand how authority works. I say jump, my soldiers say how high. My commanders and my superiors say jump and I say how high. And Jesus, I've heard a lot of stories about you. And the only conclusion that I can come to is that you're like a three-star general in the spiritual realm. And Jesus, I need you. My servant needs you. Jesus, of all the people I could have bribed, coerced, and called, I'm just begging you, please come. Here's how I would summarize it. The centurion sees who Jesus is and is trusting in nothing and no one else. The centurion sees who Jesus is and is trusting in nothing and no one else. Verse nine, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. To which I just kind of imagine the disciples are there and like, pardon me, (laughs) Israel, all of them. Jesus, remember when we talked about your inside voice? Remember we talked about that filter that you seem to struggle with and always just speaking your mind? Jesus, did you just say that the Roman centurion who's part of an oppressive regime has more faith in the entire Jewish nation of the religious leaders as well? Jesus, do you realize that you just elevated a Gentile a Roman centurion as a model of religious faith. Jesus, I really think you need to look at those resumes of the PR managers we were suggesting, right? Like, Jesus, come on. But nope. That's what Jesus says. I haven't found faith like this in all Israel. Jesus, 
I just kind of imagine the disciples are like, you realize he's from a group of people that opposes everything that you're for. He's part of an oppressive regime. Jesus, if social media existed today, you would have been canceled by now. Jesus, he is outside the box. If there's a line, you just crossed it, Jesus. You're thoroughly nonviolent, thoroughly against oppression, and he and his friends embody both. Are you sure, Jesus, that you want to associate with him? And yet, guess what comes next? Jesus doesn't proposition the centurion. He doesn't say, hey, if you, you know, sell your possessions or if you release your servants or if you quit being a Roman centurion, then I'll heal your servant. Nope. He just says, I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. Then verse 10, then the men who'd been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Jesus healed the servant. Here's a question for you. Did Jesus nullify his teachings and life pattern against oppression, use of power, servant-heartedness, nonviolence by associating with, caring for, and pointing out an area of beauty in this man's life? Of course not. He healed someone and commended someone's faith. Period. What Jesus does in this moment, though, is so much bigger than a Roman centurion. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time together today. Here's the bottom line that anyone in the first century would have seen loud and clear. Jesus blows up the boundary-based system based on insiders and outsiders, and he rebuilds it around himself. Jesus blows up the boundary-based system built on insiders and outsiders and rebuilds it around himself. Can I draw it for you? Here's how the system worked back then. So this was the Jewish people and they saw themselves as in and everybody else was outside the circle, they were out. It was a system built on insiders and outsiders. And then the fascinating thing, and this is what we see all throughout the gospels is not only was there an insider outsider mentality, but there was actually the Jews and the religious leaders were constantly trying to bring the boundaries in on what it meant to be a true, you know, a Jewish person. And so they're constantly making the rules tighter and tighter. And it's like, not only a Sabbath, no work, but it's like, you can't walk this far unless, and then, then you're outside the boundaries, right? You're breaking the rules. They would constantly do this, right? And so they're constantly closing the circle on what it means to be in and to be a faithful Jew. And everybody else is the Gentile. They're outside and they're the insiders. It's a system built on insiders and outsiders. Then Jesus shows up and it's like, he doesn't even see the line. And he's constantly getting in trouble because he's stepping over this line, stepping over that line. And they're like, we saw your disciples and they did this and they're all upset because he's crossing over their human-made boundaries where they're trying to make things insiders and outsiders and it's as if Jesus doesn't see the lines and they're constantly at odds and they're constantly arguing over this insider outsider thing but this is how the system was insiders and outsiders now the interesting thing is we can look back on that system and say oh my gosh right like they're constantly arguing about insiders and outsiders like how could be that they be that way but isn't it true that as human beings we're experts in the insider outsider game I mean you could put whatever you you want in this circle and we have a way of making it insiders and outsiders. We see this between countries, right? We see this as patriotism, right? You put your definition of patriotism in here and all the things that you view inside the circle and all the views that are not your view are outside, right? It's like, no, no, this is what it means to be a true patriot. Everyone else is on the outside. We see this with our friends, right? It's like, hey, this is what it means to be my friend and we have all these different things and this person used to be my friend, but then they started doing this or they started hanging out with this person or they started believing that. Now they're outside. They started posting this or posting that on social media 
media. Now they're outside your friend group. You don't draw this circle, but let's be honest. They don't get your invites anymore. They don't get your random texts or calls anymore, right? You went, they were in, now they're out. We do this as humans. We do this in politics, right? What it means to be liberal. If you're outside that view, then you're not a liberal or what it means to be conservative or what it means to be woke, all these different things. We do this not even just with politics. We do this with office politics, right? It's like, yeah, and these people voted for this policy and these people in the office are really good, but can you believe John? He voted for that and he's trying to change this and that, right? It's like insiders and outsiders. We're really good at this. We do this with family. We do this with family all the time, right? It's like, hey, these are the people who come to our family, but Uncle John is never invited. Why? Because he dates that person or he does that thing or he always brings that up, right? And it's like, you've never drawn this circle, but let's just be honest. As human beings, we're constantly playing the insiders and outsiders game, labeling who's in and who's out. Jesus shows up in a system 2,000 years ago that was fully built on insiders and outsiders, and he frustrates everyone because he rebuilds the system around himself. This is what Jesus does, okay? He puts himself at the center. Now, there's lots of people who hang around Jesus. I'll just draw a few of them, okay? So let's talk about the religious leaders. The religious leaders, even though they seem to disagree and argue with Jesus all the time, in proximity, they're always so close to Jesus, right? It's like Jesus walk in, one of the disciples grabs some grain, and they're there like, aha! It's like, where do y'all come from? It's like, they're always near Jesus. But we find out, and Jesus calls them out on it all the time. He's like, no, 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 you guys are all about your rules and behavior modification. That's what you guys really care about. So while they're close to Jesus, their gaze, their trust is not in Jesus, but in something completely different. Then you got the disciples. Let's talk about Judas. I mean, Judas is, you know, in the inner circle. He's a disciple. But then what do we find out? Even though he's so close to Jesus, his, his gaze and his trust is in, yeah, we learn that later in the story, in money. Then you got the other disciples, right? And I mean, they've left homes and jobs and families. Like, gosh, they are so committed, right? They're so close to Jesus. They follow Jesus. They often don't get it. They're kind of like, but anyways, but they're there, right? They're faithful. And then one of their moms shows up one day and kind of shows like, yeah, maybe they're a little bit faithful, but they also have their eye on, can they sit on a throne one day on your right and left in heaven? And all of a sudden you realize that they have at least some impure motives that they have, you know, they, they just, you know, want to be famous or have status or power or whatever that is, however you describe that, okay? So all these people, you know, if there was a boundary, they'd be in, they're really close. But they're always, we always discover that, no, their faith and trust is completely different. And then this is what Jesus does in the story. He's like, but then there's this, this Roman centurion way over here. It's like, you had to cross seven boundary lines to get to him. And Jesus is like, this guy, his faith and trust is in nobody else but me. He's gazing at me. He is looking at me. His eyes are on me. His faith is in me. His trust is in me. Of all the things that he could be trusting in, in money and power and position and status, he's trusting in me, a Jewish rabbi, a carpenter. It's fascinating what Jesus does in this story that we often miss, but the people in the first century would have seen this right away. It's like, Jesus, but Jesus, but Jesus, he's, he's not one of us. He's not inside the bounds. Jesus is like, but find me someone who has as much faith as him. Can you imagine the political damage for a Roman centurion asking for help? The Jews were the losers of society. And yet this Roman centurion has no reason to trust in Jesus. And he's like, I'm staking everything to call Jesus. I need Jesus. Jesus is calling out, listen, I know you're close to me, but you're not focused on me. And him, he seems far, but his faith and his trust is in me alone. 
and have never seen faith like his. Imagine the response from the people around him. But Jesus, he's not a Jew. Jesus, he's not circumcised. He hasn't been with us very long. I bet he can't recite the 10 commandments. Jesus, I don't even think he understands all of our doctrine. Jesus, he hasn't been to our newcomer's lunch. He hasn't signed the statement of faith. Jesus, he's part of an oppressive regime. You know what Jesus does in this moment? He fails. He fails at drawing boundaries for insiders and outsiders. In fact, I would say, as we said before, Jesus blows up the boundary-based system built on insiders and outsiders and rebuilds it around himself. It's like Jesus saying, yeah, guys, I know he doesn't look like us, act like us, probably doesn't believe everything at this moment that we believe, but friends, he's fully in. He's got faith. He's risking his life and his reputation with unimaginable faith that I haven't seen in anyone else up until this point. Friends, when we look at our world and the gravitational pull, I don't know about you, but I'm always towards boundary-based systems, labeling who's in, who's out. Oh, they think that way. Oh, they quoted that, right? Like That's what we do as human beings. And if you want to see the end result of that, just look at social media. We continue to move, not just as human beings, but even as Jesus followers, further and further apart from each other when we play the boundary-based system game. Jesus steps into a divided world and regularly steps over dividing lines towards humans. As Christians, we often do the opposite. We continually build walls and categories, categories of who's in, who's out, who's friend, and who's foe. And you know this, right? I mean, not much has changed in 2,000 years. We still do the boundary-based system game just, we just keep changing what's inside the bounds and outside the bounds. Can I draw it for you? Let me just list some of the things that as Christians we like to divide over. We love to divide over politics, you know, what it means to be a Christian. Should we be conservative? Should we be liberal? You know, should we be pro-life? Should we be pro-choice? What do we mean about law and order? No, definitely not that. We mean this. And what do we do with issues of race and racism? And we have different views on divorce that we divide over. No, it's this view of divorce. And are you kidding me? It's this view of divorce and only that, right? We have other ideas of, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit or does the Holy Spirit even work. We can divide and argue over that and climate change and what climate change, right? We have views on gender and sexuality and homosexuality and views on refugees and how we should treat them and public schools and private schools and homeschool, right? We could do this all day long, different theologians and that one and this one and this theologian. And then some of you are like, and Mark, you didn't mention this, but we divide over this. And what, yeah, I'm sure you have other ones, right? Like we could go on all day. It'd be a great lunchtime conversation listing all the things that Christians argue over and divide over. And then once we have all those things, isn't this true what we do? This is what we do, okay? We do this. Whoop, no, not that one, that one. Ooh, don't forget that one. And this one and that, 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 that. Ah. And then we go, Jesus. Yes, that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's our camp, right? It's like the bounded set. And then someone else comes along like, wait, 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 almost, almost, but let's just hang on. Let's just open this up a little bit. And there, now it's Jesus. And someone else is like, no, I, 
It's like this, and that's Jesus. And then someone else comes along and like, are you kidding me? This is Jesus, right? It's like we constantly have different ideas of what the boundaries are of Jesus following. And then, and then it gets more nuanced than that because then sometimes it's like, okay, yeah, that's the boundary for us. But then we kind of have this little dotted line over here. It's like, you know, this one isn't really ours, but if you're there, that's okay. We'll accept you. We'll love you. We won't judge you at all. But then it's like, but other ones, it's like, just to be clear, this line here, this line here, this is hard. This one, no go. If you accept this, you might as well separate because you're not a Jesus follower on that one. Right? We are constantly making the, you know, who's in, who's out. Now, let me be clear. These are all important issues. You should have convictions on a lot of them. But let's be honest. These lines that we draw are of human origin. We humans are the common denominator in the changing of lines. You know, I know that because I can read history. You know, you read history and you realize that there were hard lines, let's say, you know, views on, on women, you know, or divorce, you know, and we just realized that, you know, 20 years later, it's like all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's a different line or it's a softer line or whatever it is. I remember talking to my boss who got married in the 80s. He's like, you know, Mark, in the 80s, dancing at Christian weddings was a hard line. And I was like, really? He's like, oh yeah, you were out if you did that. I'm like, I wouldn't have survived in the 80s because these hips don't lie. I need to dance, right? But all of a sudden you just realize as you look at history, you talk to people who've lived a bit longer than us, you realize these lines are continually changing. In fact, you don't even look at history, just look in the mirror. All of us have things that as Jesus followers over the years or even decades, we've changed our minds on. Things that we originally had boundaries around that now, no, we're, we see that differently or it's a bit more nuanced or it's a bit more gray. And in fact, travel the world and ask them where their boundaries as Jesus followers is and they will all have boundary-based systems that are different. Bottom line is this moment of honesty, which is we are the ones that are constantly deciding which are the hard lines, which are the soft lines, which are the things you can and can't believe to be in or out, friend or foe. Now, some of you might be thinking, but Mark, 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 no, 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 that's not true. We didn't build it. Our boundaries are based purely on the Bible, to which I'm always like, really? Are you sure? There's nothing you've added or subtracted, nothing you've made more or less important. You've nailed it. For the first time in history, you're sure, like your lines will never change again. You can hand it to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation, and they will just continue to photocopy it off to the next generation. Like you've nailed it. Whenever I talk to someone who has the, you know, the Bible trump card, like, no, no, our boundaries are based on the Bible. You know, we got the Bible. Um, I always want to say, careful in your certainty. And I say that to myself as well. I'm reminded of Mark Knoll in his book, Civil War, a Theological Crisis. And he tells this wild story in history of a time when the abolitionists, abolitionists were those who were fighting against slavery, you know, and they were being called out by Christians. Isn't that Ironic, you think about history and you think, wait, the people who were trying to get rid of slavery were getting attacked by the Christians. Yes, I know, history's crazy, okay? And one of the, you know, anti-abolitionists, one of the people who felt, no, slavery needs to continue, spoke out. In fact, this is a preacher, okay? And his words are reflected by so much of, of Christianity in the South. This preacher is quoted as saying, speaking to the abolitionists, this is what he says, the abolitionists must abandon their fiery cause or abandon the scriptures. They cannot hold to both. It's like, you can't be anti-slavery and hold the scriptures. Like, are you kidding me? It's like, and when I look at history and I see all throughout history ways in which we've misunderstood or propped up the scriptures to benefit ourselves, 
There's this humbling that happens in me. There's a humbling in my certainty that lets me just kind of sit back for a minute. That's why I always encourage my church to never use the phrase, the Bible's clear, or the Bible says it, that settles it. Not because I don't think that things in scripture can be that way, but I think there just needs to be a humility in the way that we walk, knowing what Christians have done or what people in the name of Jesus have done with scriptures. I always tell my church, I always tell the next generation, every cult has a verse. So be careful. So instead I encourage my church when they're, you know, holding the scriptures and trying to decide, you know, the way we go, you know, instead of being so adamant and clear, I always say, you know, I see that differently or here's how I understand Jesus's words and do you see that differently? And we open conversation because the Bible's clear and that's not even a conversation and that's, the Bible says it, that settles it. Those are conversation enders. And as Jesus people, I think we need to be wrestling in the midst of it. So while we're at it, you know, talking about, you know, our boundaries are based in the Bible, I always say, like, really? Are you sure you finally nailed it? Because I've heard so many stories of people's bounded sets, you know, it's these policy statements or this statement of faith, right? And yet, personally speaking, I've never seen a statement of faith or a policy manual that says, you know, at our church, we're a one jacket church, right? Like, I've never seen anyone say, just to be clear, we're a one jacket church. That's part of it. If you're not a one jacket Christian, you're not part of us. Because Jesus says, if you have two coats, give one away. That's what Jesus said, right? And yet, I never meet any Christians who are like, yeah, so in our statement of faith or our policies, you will find it very clear. We are a one jacket church. I've never met that church. In fact, I've gone to people's houses. I walk in their entranceway. They have like their closet open. They got all their coats. I'm like, y'all just like bragging about your sin with all your jackets? Bunch of progressives. I'm just kidding. What am I doing? I'm being facetious just to make a point. We love deciding who's in right and wrong and saying, but ours are built on scripture. Yet Jesus in this story does something game-changing. And Jesus walks past seven boundary lines, you could say. He says, hey, you, you're part of an oppressive regime, but you got faith, man. You're looking at me. You're moving towards me. You're putting your faith in me. To which they'd be like, but Jesus, what about, what about, what about? I just feel like Jesus would be like, I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm recognizing the spirit of God working in his life. Let me just be clear, friends. I think these are important issues and we should have opinions and convictions on a lot of them. I sure do. Where we stumble in a way other than the Jesus way is when we declare who's in, who's out, friend or foe, depending on where they sit on certain issues instead of faith in Jesus at the center. I am convinced that we are missing out on people that Jesus wants us to meet and be encouraged by in our faith as he did with this Roman centurion because we've manufactured boundaries and stayed away from them because we disagree on an issue. Somehow the belief has crept in that someone is wrong on an issue if they're wrong on an issue and we are always the ones who choose which issues are the deal breakers. Two jackets has never made the cut, just saying. If they're wrong on an issue, we have nothing to gain from them. Let me share a quick story with you. In the last two years, it's fair to say it's been very polarizing in our world. And something I regularly do is I listen to other preachers uh, from other streams of the Christian faith and I just am challenged. You know, you often wonder who's preaching to the preacher. So I make sure to have a good dose of different preachers who speak and different issues. And there was this one preacher who I'd been listening to for years who I'd learned so much about the work of the Holy Spirit through. And in the last two years, he came out on an issue that I saw very differently, very differently. And I was really upset. Yeah, I didn't, you know, tell anyone, I didn't preach about it. I simply just kind of in my heart without declaring it, canceled him. 
And I just thought I'm, I'm not listening to him anymore. I'm not quoting him anymore. I'm just, I'm frustrated that he doesn't see it the right way, the right way. And then as I was journaling a few months later, I just sensed this from God. And I'll just kind of read you some of the thoughts that came to mind as I was journaling and praying. Mark, did you think that because he thinks differently on an issue that you consider wrong, that that means his faith is non-existent? that he is not to be trusted, that somehow he's a false teacher and the spirit of God is not moving in his life. Mark, where in the Bible does it say the fruit of the spirit is perfect theology? Mark, I've been working in your life for years and in that time, your views on a whole matter of subjects has evolved drastically. Mark, can I not be moving in his life too? Or can the spirit of God not move in someone's life until they have everything perfect? And if that's the requirement, Mark, I guess I'll never be moving in yours. It was a good reminder for me that I am just as susceptible to put down boundaries and cut people out of my life. And God was saying, you're gonna miss out on something that I have for you. If you choose the boundary way of making the world instead of the way of Jesus, which walks across boundaries and sees the direction of people's gaze. Now, to be clear, I do believe that Jesus models that there are some people that we should avoid or cut out the influence in our lives. Absolutely. But I do not want this message to die the death of a thousand qualifications. I would say far more often, we are drawing lines around people like the centurion. They don't fit into our camp and yet their love and passion is undeniably for Jesus. And God may be trying to show us something through them but they're on the outside of one of our boundaries and we miss them completely and we miss what God has for us. Here's the bottom line. We continue to include and exclude people based on where we have chosen to draw the lines of inclusion only to change our minds and apologize 20 years later. I'm not saying by the way that there's no absolute truth or conviction and you shouldn't have a stance on issues. I'm saying I wanna see a Jesus community that doesn't use manufactured boundaries as prerequisite to community fellowship, respect, and curiosity of what God wants to teach us through those who may see things differently. Because I'm convinced the Spirit of God is moving in their lives. But most of the time, we can't even get close enough to discover what God is doing in their lives because we can't see past our human-made boundaries or the artificial need to force them to see it our way before we will engage with them. Just remember, the disciples could never have learned from the faith of a Roman centurion if Jesus didn't step over that boundary. So friends, let's land the plane here. I'm sure there's so many questions, so much to discuss. You know, I shared this story at the university campus and there was just like an hour of great conversation that came after, okay? So uh, don't let this stop. I, I actually hope this is kind of an appetizer for discussion on the way that we create boundaries of who's in and out. But here's what I would hate for us to do. I would hate for us to miss the question that I think this story prompts so clearly which is this, who is normally outside my boundaries that God is inviting me towards? To love, serve, and learn from. Not to engage on Facebook or in the comment section. Who personally can I sit with and love and learn from who's normally outside my boundaries? Before I sit, you know, have you sit for a minute with that question and allow the spirit to prompt you or lead you to someone, I just want to share that this is something that I'm living out in my life all the time. 
Uh, I don't know if you realize this, but every once in a while, pastors get complaint emails. And, uh, you know, sometimes they're emails saying, you know, how much they disagree with the message that I preached. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, okay, I can see that. And then other times I just read them and there's like, there's just two words that I want to reply to the email with, which is simply, you're wrong. <laughs> but I don't do that, okay? But hopefully this doesn't end up online. But anyways, okay. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, you know, what I've made a habit of is anytime someone disagrees with me or has a, a challenge or a problem, I always invite them to coffee every single time. And it's fascinating. Like sometimes people show up and they have like a notebook and a Bible and they like have all their arguments and all their points and they're ready to kind of go at it. And I always just get them a cup of coffee and I just say, hey, I don't think I know your story. You tell me a little bit about you. And I just, I just spend as much time. I always make so much time in the calendar. And I just want to sit with them. I want to hear their heart. I want to hear their story. I want to hear what they've been through. And here's what I've discovered. Even with people who I leave that meeting and say, yeah, I can say we see that completely differently. I have never been disappointed that even people who I completely disagree with, when I sit down, look them eyeball to eyeball and hear their story, I'm always blessed, I'm always encouraged, and most of the time, even with people who I disagree with, there's grains of salt or grains of truth in their critique that actually bless and challenge me. I'm blown away all the time when I move into that. So here's the question I want you to ask. Maybe hopefully that takes you know, some of your walls down and you can let the Holy Spirit bring anyone to mind. Who's normally outside my boundaries that God is inviting me towards to love, serve, and learn from. I'm going to give you a minute as the band plays, and then we're going to sing a response song. But I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to bring someone or some group of people to mind who you could be moving towards, maybe crossing some boundaries that you've artificially put up, and looking them eyeball to eyeball, learning from, serving, caring for, and loving. Would you just sit with that question for a minute?